Hi, this is Tristan Scroggins, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, well after that intro I don't think there's any surprises as to what's coming in this episode, yep I've got an interview with Tristan Scroggins for you. Um, it was a pleasure talking to Tristan, such a great conversation, such a generous uh, person with his time and his insights and I just I had such a good time recording this and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Um, for those of you who don't know, Tristan Scroggins is a fantastic mandolin player, he was nominated for IBMA's Mandolin Player of the Year this year, uh, 2021, and he also won the Writer of the Year Award. He's also a great writer and journalist, and also, um, in his own words, educator. He is interesting from so many different angles. Um, I'm going to do what I often do with these interviews now. I say often, this is the fourth, but I'm going to, um, rather than kind of go through a history of how Tristan got into playing music and the bands he's been in and, and where he's been, that's been covered so well in a couple of other podcasts, so I'm going to stick links in the show notes. He did a couple of interviews for Mandolins and Beer um, and for Bluegrass Unlimited, and so I'm just going to link to them, and you can go and listen to those for the, the sort of the life story stuff, because they're great, and they're a really good listen. Um, but what we did was dive in a bit more on a few other bits. Um, so, this is it. Here we go. I'm going to let you listen to Tristan tell you all about his playing, about his writing, about the work he's done, sort of digging into the authenticity and background of a lot of these tunes uh, and, it, and it's fascinating stuff so I can't thank him enough for doing it and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Tristan Scroggins, welcome to Bluegrass Chamalong, it's great to have you here. Oh thanks for having me Matt. Um, first off, congratulations on being nominated for IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year and congratulations for winning Writer of the Year. Yeah thanks. It's, That's incredible. Um, yeah it's fun to get you know, recognized for that that work. It has been very funny trying to explain to people that it's not a songwriting award. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I can't imagine it's particularly common that somebody is nominated both for an instrumental award and one of the industry awards at the same time. Yeah, I didn't really look into it. Um, there's definitely been uh, people that have won both of them, especially um, there's a a mentor award um, and so that's often going to to artists like uh, I think I can't remember who won this year but a couple of years ago I know um, Darren Aldridge won but anyway there's so there's there's definitely some crossover but it was um, fun being nominated in in both categories yeah and I think um, I think it's a really interesting sort of starting point to chat about the breadth of stuff that that you do because not only are you a wonderful instrumentalist and a great writer of songs, but also <laughs> kind of a, a writer of words and and something of a historian as well. You've you know the, the amount of kind of archiving and cataloging and just digging into the history of, of bluegrass and what makes it tick and where it came from. I think is really fascinating. You you seem to sort of straddle the line between traditionalist and progressive with total ease. Like rather than being one or the other, you're both at the same time all the time. Yeah, I I was thinking about it the other day. Um, when I won that award, actually, because one of the people who helped me get started with writing was John Weisberger. Um, and John used to have a program on Sirius Satellite Radio um, with Del McCurry. I can't remember exactly it was called something like Dell's picks or something and it was him and Del McCurry um listening to a lot of new or old music and just sort of talking about it and I remember John played a song from um, an album that I was on my uh, it was it was my dad's band Jeff Scroggins in Colorado um, he played a song from one of our albums and said that I was a great traditional mandolin player and I had never thought of myself that way because I'd grown up mostly listening to more progressive stuff, I guess. I mean, I was a huge Sam Bush fan. Um, I listened to Bela Fleck all the time and and was really into like strength and numbers and all that stuff. 
but I was playing in a bluegrass band, so I had spent a lot of time learning how to sound like a bluegrass mandolin player, and nobody had ever like commented on that, and it really made me sort of think about it, and I realized that I was actually, I had spent a long time like working on um, traditional mandolin stuff, and it sort of inspired me to to work on it a little bit more. Um, and uh, and I think yeah. That- I was going to say is that there's a really interesting conversation to be had about how progressive you can be if you don't know what you're progressing from in the first place anyway. Sure. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I grew up, well, I I lived for about eight years in Colorado, which has a really um, long and interesting bluegrass history, probably most notable, well, either for... Um, Hot Rise or Yonder Mountain String Band, um, both progressive bands. Although with Hot Rise, it's funny that as time has gone on, they're not particularly progressive anymore. I yeah, mean, sure. they, at the time, they were they were um, a very contemporary band, but um, things have just sort of. I mean, they still do a lot of like, <laughs> I guess, doing their whole Western swing thing is also. Um, very not bluegrass, but, but anyway, so there's this long tradition of that, that stuff in Colorado that I grew up around. And a lot of times it did really feel like, um, there wasn't a ton of foundation to the stuff that people was, were doing sometimes. Like it, it felt sort of disconnected from the source and made it feel like even more disconnected from, from bluegrass. Um, but then as I started to learn more about that, the history of that music too, I, it started to to make more sense. It was just sort of this, it, it, it was a branch that branched pretty far away from the source pretty quickly. So it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't sound as similar to traditional bluegrass as some other like variants, you know, that you might hear do. Yeah, yeah. And I find that kind of stuff fascinating. I did... Um my sort of degree was in pop music history. So I I mm. love that thing of, of pulling on a thread and seeing where something came from and yeah. where it goes to. And I'm, ultimately it sort of doesn't matter. If you like a bit of music, it doesn't necessarily matter where it came from or if it moves right. you, it moves you. Like, But I, I find it interesting to go and dig back into the history of the bands that I like and see who they liked and where that came from. And, you know, you can, you can keep going forever. Um, and I've, I've this is maybe something that's particularly pertinent to me because I grew up outside of the States, outside of the tradition of bluegrass. It's not something I grew up with. Um, and I wonder, it is something you grew up with. I mean, there's a brilliant quote I read that you said something like, I think by the time I turned eight, I've been listening to him play banjo for eight years and nine months. And that's <laughs> talking about your dad. And it's like, you know, since you were in the womb, you had a sense of this music. And I find that really powerful. And it, it makes it particularly interesting that you then chose to kind of almost study it as well. Um, a lot of people have an approach that is very much, this is an oral music, it's handed down by tradition. It doesn't, you shouldn't be studying it in the, a sort of an academic sense. You should mm-hmm. learn as much as you can about it. But, and um, I wondered sort of where that came from, where the sort of the seed of just really wanting to explore it in that way came from. Yeah, I, I think there's this interesting thing. My friend George Jackson wrote, a piece for No Depression, I think it was No Depression, a few years ago, um, about feeling like an outsider playing bluegrass, because he's from New Zealand, and now he lives here in Nashville um, as a professional fiddler, and his sort of experience of not having any claim to authenticity. Um, And for me, I have this kind of weird thing where I I grew up in New Mexico where there wasn't very much bluegrass, but my dad was who is who my dad is. Um, So I, I was learning it in a very traditional way. I I was learning from him and I was um, learning from just, you know, playing music with people, but there was still a sense of like, you know, I, I remember coming out East for the first time and seeing the Cumberland river and seeing um, the Shenandoah Valley and seeing signs for all of these places that songs were written about. And there aren't any songs really about any of the places that I grew up. Yeah. And 
I, I don't know. I, there's definitely this thing. I see it a lot out West where people, because of this perceived um, lack or feeling like they don't have this claim to authenticity, sometimes they'll go really far into learning some like the history and being really intense about knowing everything about it more so than a lot of people I know out here um, in, in Nashville or, or, you know, in the Southeast. And I think some of it is, is just looking, looking for that sense of authenticity. And for me, it was definitely, I remember I had this sort of moment where I was probably like 18 or 19 and I was just wondering like, why do I like bluegrass? <laughs> like I, you know, it, it, it was the most important thing in my life and still is. But, um, I, I started to wonder like, why is this important to me and why is it important to other people? Like what, it, what about it makes it interesting to other people? And I think back then I maybe had a more naive sense of like maybe bluegrass is special. Like there's, I traveled a lot and been to like the UK and been to Norway and France and Canada and all these places where there was people who loved bluegrass. Like, and like, what was the, I was really curious what the thing that was drawing them to it was. And I, I don't know that there's anything particular about bluegrass. Cause there's also people in all those places that like, jazz and there's people here that are really into Scandinavian folk music so but that sort of curiosity led me you know to just sort of want to learn about all that history and I just got kind of obsessed with with learning about it and I think it made me a better not necessarily like just knowing about it made me a better musician but that curiosity led me down some musical rabbit holes that I think made me a more well-rounded musician. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. I remember you wrote something about a sort of really moving experience of being in the Netherlands at a festival and just mm -hmm. realizing you were surrounded by people who have no physical connection to the spaces or the places or, or even some of the culture, but were mm -hmm. equally moved by the music as people who grew up right in the heart of it all. Yeah. And um, it's a bit, I think it's, I think sometimes music can be like a sort of like a, a city without boundaries. And they're like, I live in London, but I wasn't born here. I wasn't brought up here, but you move to London and you live in London for a while and you become a Londoner. You just sort of, that sort of authenticity thing isn't a thing. You don't have to have been born here to be considered a Londoner. And I guess mm -hmm. a city like New York's probably the same after a while, you just become a New Yorker. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about bluegrass. Like I'm, you know, thousands of miles and, a lot of different culture away from being part of it. And yet through playing it with people and listening to it and doing this podcast, I feel like I'm in some way part of that family or that sort of city of music. Mm -hmm. And um, I think bluegrass has that in maybe a way that jazz or something like that doesn't, because it, it does have a sort of spiritual homeland in a, in a very strong way. And the songs are written about the places and the, you know, the landscapes and. Yeah. You know. I, one of my favorite things about going to IBMA, which is notable because IBMA has pretty deliberately um, decided to not define bluegrass. Like there's not really any sort of desire to say this is what bluegrass is because that immediately leads to saying it, ex it inherently excludes things. Yeah. Um, but going to IBMA... Um, or EWOB back when that was a thing um, was is really interesting because everybody there loves bluegrass, but it means something different to every single person there. Like bluegrass is not the same to everybody there, but they all love it and are connected by this very intangible idea of being connected to, to something. And I do think that bluegrass is very unique as far as musical genres go in that in that sense and then there's all there's definitely a weird thing with genre i think about the, it a lot like with with book genres there's a little bit more like you can be a little bit more clear-cut about something being 
science fiction or a mystery or whatever, but musical genres are very much just classifications meant to sell albums. Like it's just how, how to put something in a bin that um, a person who's going to buy it is most likely going to find it. And so while we can sort of retroactively look at a time period of bluegrass and define it based on that, it again with John Weisberger, he, I'm going to sort of misquote him because I can't remember exactly, but he, his sort of idea about it is that if it's music that was performed with the intent of being bluegrass was sold with the intent of being bluegrass and bought as bluegrass, then it is bluegrass. Like it, it is all sort of based on this collective idea of what it is there to put an inherent marker on, on what makes something bluegrass or not. It, it, it doesn't work because immediately it turns into, well, you know, it has to sound like this. And then, but then you have things like those albums of Bill Monroe and Doc Watson playing together that don't really fit that mold or a lot of Doc Watson stuff that like not everything he did was bluegrass necessarily, but a lot of it was, but a lot of it didn't, you know, broke a lot of the rules that people would ascribe to bluegrass and things like that. Yeah, totally. And I, when I spent years working in, in record shops and like bookshops back in the day, and, and it is exactly what you say. It's about, it's marketing. Like genres are marketing. They're not, they don't tell you what's going to be in the thing when you open it. It's, and with a book, you can't, you do get instances where people will slap a different cover on a book and sell it as a, an adult version or a young adult version, like a teen book or, a, you know, like the Harry Potter books or Philip mm. Pullman or whatever. But yeah, like in music, I remember we'd be there sort of debating for hours. Do we put Steve Earle in country or rock? Like, where do we put him? And I remember going to see him, you know, years ago and him saying, I'd love coming to the UK because nobody cares really what my music is. They just like it or they don't. And, mm. you know, it said back home, people can get a little bit obsessed with whether I'm country or not. He said, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, Steve Earle never said anything quite that gently, but, you know, <laughs> that's a good point. You know, then you end up with an R.E.M. album that says on the spine, file underwater. You know, because they were just like, well, you, we're not going to tell you where to put this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that I I could go on a pretty long tangent about my sort of ideas about this. But I do think that bluegrass changed in the 60s and 70s around what some people would call the third generation. Other people would call the second um, where you started getting a lot of. um for lack of a better word, maybe outsiders, like people not in that tradition hearing the music, a lot of like middle-class Northern and Western, like college age kids, you know, finding it through the folk revival. And a couple of things happened all at once. I think one of them being that all these new bands started forming and it was the first time really that you could be exposed to bluegrass without hearing the first generation source for a lot of the material. Like you were hearing people professionally perform covers of the music. Um, and that changes how, you know, you're hearing their interpretation of something. And so that immediately is going to cause a lot of, of growth and change in the music. And in addition to that, it became this sort of, there was a lot of people trying to like fit into this idea or like being intrigued by the culture and sort of adapting to it. And so I like, I wasn't there back then. So it's like talking about it feels weird, but I can talk about like now growing to bluegrass festivals in California or Washington state where, you know, there's all these people who grew up out there playing bluegrass, but they wear flannel shirts and speak in like sort of vague Southern accents and are really intense about stuff. And in a lot of ways, it feels very similar to um, like a, like a Star Trek convention or something like it's, 
because there's sort of this idolizing of this idea of what this is and sort of wanting to to cosplay and be a part of it and in other countries it's i have this book somewhere um about country music in in the uk and um I guess even with my experience, like playing in Germany and stuff like I, I play or France, I played at this festival in France and there was all these people who were really into line dancing and just would line dance to anything. And like, it was very, very strange being like in the French countryside surrounded by very French people dressed up as cowboys and selling like Confederate flag merch, which is its whole own thing. And, um, dancing like line dancing to um acoustic covers of acdc songs you know it's just this very surreal sort of experience but yeah yeah but that i think is a big part of this music where even musically you have a lot of people writing music that is not necessarily um in the style of bluegrass as much as it is in a style that like seeks to invoke or imitate the style of bluegrass and not necessarily on a conscious level, but I I think a lot of those songs that just are about bluegrass, like bluegrass songs about bluegrass sort of fall into this category of like, is this a bluegrass song or is it just a song about bluegrass? Like it's. And I think that happens if you're trying to be involved with something that you're not physically present for. It's like, you know, sort of history of, comedy tv comedy in in the uk and in the sort of 50s and 60s all our comedians sounded american and they all sang like Mm. they were part of the rat pack and because that was the cool thing Mm. and then you know everything on tv was basically trying to be american and then the beatles came along who were just being the beatles who were just as northern and as british and couldn't have come from anywhere else than they did and it was sort of a bit of a shock because you still have mick jagger trying to sound like he was from wherever mick jagger sounds like he's from i don't he was, knows, you know, he was here last night actually there's videos of him walking around on broadway because <laughs> the stones yeah, yeah, they're on played. tour at the moment aren't they yeah yeah and that's you know that's a whole in a way sort of like a a version of cultural cultural appropriation in a sense you know mm. and it's it's just i think there's that i think you said something earlier on actually about it's that desire to belong to something and but your idea of it is can be very different from the reality of it you know yeah. a lot of people who get into Americana in the UK have a certain sense of it that is probably about 30% of what it actually is. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, I don't necessarily want to sound like I'm saying that that's all bad because it's like, I mean, that's my roots too. Like, even though I have a very in retrospect sort of authentic sort of experience, um, I, you know, I was, I was, I was living in New Mexico and I, I recently did a bunch of research and writing about bluegrass in New Mexico. And one of my favorite things about it was um, all of the band names, like they sort of were trying to sound, they matched the style of bluegrass band names, but they didn't, they used things that were relevant to them so there i played in a band called the squash blossom boys and there was like the adobe brothers or the san juan mountain boys or um you know there's all these bands out there that i i think that that sort of captures the spirit of both of those things it's like well this is we're doing this thing but we're doing it here like we're not none of the people in new mexico were trying to like be southern exactly and i i I think that that i I don't know i think that there's i really love people all over playing bluegrass and i i I, but i do think it's it gets sort of weird for me when people i think that sometimes people get in this space of like having to define what bluegrass is so that they can like make these these claims um or um and that's not very helpful actually so i try to avoid avoid that and it's really i think that's really interesting because authenticity is sort of two things isn't it and one is 
authenticity of the like stylistically the music you're playing but also being authentically yourself while you play it because part of the journey of being a musician is to learn to be you know I had a bit of a chat about this on the podcast last week about punch brothers recording church street blues mm-hmm. and punch, punch brothers can only be like the reason they are brilliant is because they fully explore who they are yeah and a lot of people don't like it and that's fine but they they can't do anything else that's that's their job as artists is to be the most fully realized version of themselves doing whatever they do. And if they take a certain bit of source material that was a cover anyway, like yeah, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And whether you like it or not, it's entirely different. And so yeah. it's not, it's not like author, air quotes authentic in terms of it doesn't sound like Norman Blake. Um, and it sort of does as well. And that's okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a great example. And I, I love that. Um, version partly because i do actually enjoy it but i also love how upset it makes people (laughs) yeah yeah but i talked to to chris eldridge about it and he was saying that it so far it's certainly been the most divisive thing they've ever done probably but for him i mean he learned tony was his teacher and Tony was showing like teaching him to do stuff like that. Like he wasn't teaching him to do note for note covers of things. He was teaching him to push the boundaries of stuff. And so it's a very authentic expression uh, and a very like loving and thoughtful cover to, to perform that music in a way that like honors how innovative and creative Tony Rice was and how great that record. I mean, like you're saying he was covering Norman Blake and he doesn't, he takes out a bunch of like cool stuff from the, you know, I like the way that Norman Blake plays it, but I also love the way Tony plays it. And it would be weird (laughs) to just do a note for note cover of, of Tony, especially for an artist like the punch brothers. Speaking yeah, of somebody who has done a lot of Tony Rice covers on stage, but yeah, and it's and that, that's one of the things not coming from the tradition that I find really interesting because I'm putting out these backing tracks for people to jam along with at home, mm-hmm. and I go to great pains to say like I will play a version of the tune for you to play back up to, but it's not the version of the tune, or yeah. it's like I'm not encouraging you to play that version of the tune. That's just how I've come to that tune you can play any version you like over my backing chords but but that um i think maybe i slightly naively thought because i talked to brian sutton on the podcast recently and he said yeah like you get 100 guitar players you're going to get 100 versions of whiskey for breakfast whiskey Mm -hmm. before breakfast and um and i sort of thought well maybe there aren't like what is the authentic version of these tunes but i I, and then i this is sort of how i ended up um kind of reading a bit more about you because i saw that you'd put out this book of mandolin transcriptions and had sort of gone through sort of looking for the source of the tunes as well, not mm-hmm. just variations and here's how to play it, but here's here's where it came from. Mm-hmm. And um, and it throws up some interesting stuff because if you ask questions, you sometimes come back with uncomfortable answers in the history of some of those tunes. And, and I find that fascinating and sort of curious to know how far back you can go to be authentic with a tune and, and know what a version was from something that was, you know, an oral tradition originally. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I mean, I think about, uh, you know, because of publishing books like that, and also just, I I want to be authentic or whatever when I play these tunes. Um, And with studying the tunes, there was this interesting thing, especially with the bluegrass ones. I did another book of like old time tunes, and that was a little bit more straightforward. But with the bluegrass tunes, um, the ones that I picked were um, all public domain. So they're older tunes, but that were very common in the bluegrass tradition. But with a few of them, the version that people played is play in bluegrass jams is not, it's not unrelated or anything. it's, It's clearly related to the actual tune, but it's pretty different. And I sort of struggled with like, when I was writing out just the basic melody, like what do I write? Do I, cause it's not going to be really useful for anybody to know a version of this tune that nobody else is going to play in a bluegrass yeah, jam, yeah. even if it's the technically correct version of the tune. So there was a few where I definitely took more Liberty in, in writing out like 
this is the version, this is the melody that is most likely going to be played in a jam. Um, but then explaining um, that it, it has a slightly different history. Um, and part of that, I, you know, I think that that's part of my job as like an educator is to be a curator and to help students, you know, because I have a lot of experience thinking about this, playing in jams, playing with other people. And I have a lot of experience to be able to look at a version and say like, yes, this is something that people are going to actually be able to play along with. Uh, but Part of the reason I may, I wanted to do that was because a lot of books, I have a lot of tune books and they don't all necessarily do that. And it, it can be hard to, especially because I'm interested in old time music. And if you start hanging out with old time people who are really interested in the source material of things and you start playing a tune and you realize like, oh, maybe I don't actually know this tune. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one of those things I found immediately baffling when I started learning tunes you go to three tune books and there's three different versions of the tune um and mm -hmm. you, you sort of said that it was slightly easier with old time music to find the authentic versions of it and is that because old time music is a bit more like scots irish music where everybody just plays the tune and there's not so much improvisation so you haven't had people take it as far away from the original yeah i, I think that that's probably that's probably true because for example the tune beaumont rag um you know it's a it's a fiddle tune. It's a Texas style fiddle tune and it's in the key of F. It's supposed to be in the key of F because um, it's a rag and a lot of rags are in the key of F. But Doc Watson recorded a much, a version of it that's much more popular with bluegrass people than any particular Texas style version. And he plays it in D. Um, for, if I had to guess, because um, if I, it's, it lays out well in D and if you were going to play it on the guitar in F, you could just capo three and um, play out of D position. Um, but if you're just performing on your own without a fiddle, like why would you put the capo on? So um, probably just played it in D. But so now if you call it in a jam, everybody's going to know it in the key of D and they're going to know Doc Watson's version, not which is a guitar version of a song. So it's, there's a lot of difference between like a fiddle version of the song and and I think that, that that happens a lot with with tunes. And as I was looking through a lot of tunes, I, I, I could have spent a little bit more time trying to figure out exactly where they entered the common like bluegrass vernacular. But because some of them are just Bill Monroe, like Bill Monroe playing Soldier's Joy, um, like his version of it is different than like a fiddle old time version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I do think with the old time, the fact that everybody sort of deliberately plays the same melody pretty much all the time sort of preserves it. That mixed with the fact that people will memorize and know different versions of the tune. Like you can say, well, this is um, Ed Haley's version of this tune, or this is... Um, you know, whoever else's version of this tune and people will know what you're talking about and play it differently. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'd learned East Tennessee blues a while ago for the podcast and learned it from an Adam Steffi album because mm -hmm. I just loved his version and then went hunting for other versions and realized like most people play it slightly differently from that. He's, he's got a, he's got a take on it that, you know, it may have come from somewhere else that I haven't heard yet, but you know, and it's, it's really interesting to hear that and just to, and I guess particularly with bluegrass, often if you listen to a CD of bluegrass instrumentals, often the first A part and B part contain a fair amount of improvisation. Like there's not, you don't always even get a clean statement of the tune before mm -hmm. it's off into, you know, into variation. So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting picking it apart as um, somebody who comes from outside that tradition. Yeah. But, and I think it's really interesting. We, so we were talking earlier about what is authentic and traditional. You mentioned Bill Monroe and Doc Watson, you know, who mm -hmm. are two people that people would look as being fairly part of the people who created the rules um, mm -hmm. and, and yet breaking them. And and I, and I don't know if this is true, but I get the sense that um, duets are often a good way of doing that. You get a bit more scoped because bluegrass is also slightly codified as a certain set of instruments. If you get up and, mm -hmm. you know, if you get up on stage 
with those five or six instruments in your hands, people are going to look at you like a bluegrass band, even if you then play a bit of Debussy, like Punch Brothers might. Or, sure. But but the and I I, I love really love hearing um, kind of bluegrass players play in duets, particularly if they're mandolinists or guitarists, because you get to hear a bit more of like the the Skags and Rice stuff. You hear bits of Tony's rhythm playing that just get a little bit lost on a a full band recording. But it yeah. feels like people like using that kind of format to branch out a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do that. I have a duet that I play in, and we, it, it's, it's been in, I mean, so it's violin and mandolin, and it's generally very similar uh, in scope to, like, the stuff that Mike Marshall and Daryl Langer would do mm-hmm. in duets. And we would actually, we'd, we mostly would do house concerts in the Bay Area, and we would um, hand out surveys uh, during our shows and ask people to answer questions about the music while they were listening to it. And uh, we did that a bunch and got a bunch of really interesting information about, you know, what people thought that we were doing. And it was pretty like we did at one point we divvied up all the information and put it on sticky notes and arranged it on the wall. And it was 50, 50, exactly 50, 50, people who would were describing what we were doing generally as bluegrass and people who were describing what we were doing generally as classical music or um, classical crossover. And I thought, I found that really interesting. Like it, it, cause we were, I guess, technically doing both. Um, but it just had to do with people's perception of it. And so I think you're right. Like when you go up on stage, if you have a banjo, people are going to make assumptions about what kind of music it is. Like Bale has talked about that a lot where he was very desperately trying like with the flectones, trying to play music that was so far away from bluegrass as a way of saying like the banjo is not exclusively tied to this genre of music, but there's, there's ultimately going to be that perception no matter what. But if you have, um, I, I guess the mandolin kind of has that same thing, but it's less it's less of a cultural symbol. Like if somebody doesn't already isn't already familiar with the mandolin, they might not have those perce- those those preconceived sort of notions about about the music. But it's all perception, which sort of ties back into that idea of genre. It's like you know you could put that music that I make with Alyssa in either a bluegrass section or a classical crossover section. And, you know, it would 50% of the time be correct. And 50% of the time be wrong. It's great. <laughs> and, uh, but I, and I love it. And one of the reasons I, I love um, the Scroggins and Rose stuff is because just the, the ability to hear what you're doing in the space and the mm-hmm. kind of you get to hear a lot of nuance in your playing that will get lost in a sort of five-person, six-person band. Um, and I guess you play rhythm in a very different sort of way. Your job is not just to be the snare drum in the band. You get to you be the whole rhythm section while you're playing yeah. back up. And, and that um, that wonderful thing that I never realized at first about bluegrass backup is that it's as much of an improvisation as the tune is sometimes. And you're totally. finding harmonic changes or rhythmic changes or counter melody or just, you know, it's as much of a yeah. journey going on there as there is in the melody. Yeah, it's, and it's really fun playing with just one other person, um, like I love jamming with just one other person because I can mess around with the rhythm and like really find a groove because that's what, that's what's really fun about playing with really good musicians is that there's a group of you. And so there's less room for you to do a bunch of that stuff. But if everybody's supporting each other, then you can sort of, you're creating something together. And I always try to tell students, I mean, especially if you're going to a jam, like, you know, if there's 10 people in the jam you're going to be playing a song for like six to eight minutes and your solo is going to take 30 to 40 seconds, essentially. Like it's, it is a small fraction of what you're doing there. So like focusing on the rhythm is important. Same thing playing on stage. Like, you know, I take a solo on pretty much every song, but that's 30 seconds of a three minute long song. Like there's a lot, my job is mostly to play rhythm and to support whatever is, is going on in front. And that improvisation, I, um, I guess I haven't really thought about it exactly that way, but that 
improvising with the rhythm is definitely a, a big part of that. And that whole thing is essentially how this podcast started is I was, I sort of realized that I could learn tunes and I could learn to improvise, but most of the time at jam, I wasn't going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. But there weren't any backing tracks out there that just played the melody so you could play rhythm, you know, and, or there were, but they were part of a more of a jam sort of format. And so somebody else was also playing the rhythm in there. And so I thought it'd be pretty neat just to release some tracks where I just play the tune and then any yeah. other instrument could work on backup. But I essentially made them for myself because I, I wanted that and couldn't find it anywhere. Um, yeah. And it is, it's amazing how much people still spend 95, they, they flip it around, spend 95% of their time working on playing lead and improvising 5% of their time on playing rhythm. And I had a good rhythm player. I remember sort of hearing people talk a lot when Tony Rice died about people didn't I mean people talked about all facets of his playing but the amount of people who mentioned his rhythm playing first and mm-hmm. foremost as mm-hmm. the thing that you know just that he lifted everybody else on stage around him and that's a, a real a really nice thing to hear it's a very I, I remember uh, the first time I noticed I guess being in a jam where with somebody who made everybody else play better like by being in that jam i had kind of taken it a little bit for granted because i was always around my dad who's a great musician and um we played in you know we had great people in that band that we played in um greg blake was in the band from the beginning and he's a great rhythm guitar player and so i had always kind of taken that for granted i mean i I was part of what i learned when i was learning bluegrass was like you know you can't be messing around (laughs) when you're playing rhythm like you know you need to support other people but i remember like when i started to realize that in jams and like that's what i want to be as a musician is like i want to be somebody who makes other people play better because that also makes people want to play with you for one thing you know if you make other people sound better you people are going to want to play with you more and it's it's hard to do that in a in a like a big like sort of public bluegrass jam just because there's so many people and the, it's really hard for the rhythm to lock in when there's so many people. But but when I would go to jams as a like a little kid, we went to this. We would drive an hour every week and go to this jam in Santa Fe, and there would be like thirty people there. So it would take a very long time to get through a song, and I would just practice different inversions of the chords. You know, because I was playing the same three chords for like twenty minutes. So I would just practice different inversions of the chords, sort of like work on being able to still contribute to to the sound of what was going on, but like mm. also keep myself sort of entertained by by trying to learn something new in that time. Yeah, and that, those kind of jam sessions, I, it's one of the things that I end up always returning to in these kind of conversations is just the idea that music is a conversation. And... In a duet, you can have a full-on conversation with one other person where your thoughts flow in and out of each other and around each other, and you sort of say stuff to work out if it sounds right and you mean it or not. But in a, a more, sort of in a bigger, busier situation, it's hard, and then people get their 30 seconds to play their couple of choruses or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and they want they want to tell you all the things they know in one go because they're not going to get a chance to do it again for 10 minutes. And um, being able to be restrained and supportive as a musician in those sort of circumstances is a proper skill, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that um, I actually started to realize that with was um, when I was learning how to dance, like I I do like clogging and stuff. And I learned from like Mark Schatz played bass with my dad's band for a long time. And so Mark would show me stuff between, you know, gigs and stuff and his wife Eileen who passed away a couple of years ago she's a really important person in the history of clogging and like a percussive dance preservation here in the states and she was actually the one who taught John Hartford like sort of worked with him to develop that oh, step cool. that he would do yeah and so she would come on to her sometimes and and we would um dance and she you know was an amazing dancer could do all these amazing things but what she was always trying to get me and ellie the fiddle player in the band to do was just to like jam but just dancing and we were just we wanted to do all of the like fancy moves that we were learning but she was trying to get us to just um do a basic 
just a little shuffle pattern so that, you know, if somebody was going to do something cool that you could hear it and that they felt supported while they were doing it. Cause if everybody's doing a bunch of random stuff, it doesn't sound very good. You can't, there's too much information. And so being in a jam is actually the same way where you have a whole bunch of people or even just, you know, five people, like a, a just a bluegrass, just a band jamming. If you're doing a bunch of stuff like in the rhythm section, then if somebody does something, it's going to get lost. And also everything that you're doing also loses all gravity. It's so much more powerful to have that restraint to just be doing like the basic job of like keeping things together and supporting people when they do their one cool thing. And then you do one cool thing and you just do it once. It's way more powerful than like just doing everything, you know, and the same thing with playing the melody to something too. Like you could do like a crazy solo or something. Um, but it's a lot more powerful to mostly just play the melody and have like one little thing that makes it cool and interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's hard to have that restraint in a music that so greatly puts value on virtuosity and, you know, being able to do these really impressive things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably got a, a useful start with that as a musician, because I started as a drummer mm. and like, if you're doing all the stuff you can do all the time as a drummer, nobody's ever going to hire you. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to want to play with you. And so you learn to just sort of, to do a certain thing. And at the same time, I was still playing percussion in orchestras and you might not have anything to do till the third movement. Like being a percussionist in an orchestra is largely counting, and, <laughs> you know, but then when you get to do something, it sounds great because you, you add a bit of spice and a bit of color to this thing that sounds really cool already. And there's a lot of pleasure to be had in that. Um, but it's, it's one of the first things that goes out the window when the adrenaline goes and you get excited and just want to tell, it's a bit like a conversation where you want to tell somebody all the things that you're thinking in one go. And nobody wants to yeah. hear all the things you're thinking in one go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in that duet with Alyssa, with the, the most recent record we did, um, we had Wes Corbett produce it because Wes has it, you know, he grew up playing classical piano. So he's, he sort of knows that world, but, and he's done a bunch of bluegrass stuff. He's the banjo mm-hmm. player for the Sam Bush band now, but he had just done a, he himself had done a duo record with, um, a great hammer dulcimer player named Simon Chrisman. And he was really helpful in, in getting us to use space like a third member of the band. Like, like you were saying, like I, I'm not just chopping the whole time. Yeah. I, I, ha- I have to fill out a bunch of the other information. And when I, when I'm playing the lead, Alyssa has to fill out a lot of the information and we're both doing like very complicated stuff to, to fill out the rest of that information. But we figured out that you don't have to do that all the time. It doesn't have to be complicated all the time. Like you can in that situation use silence as a a very like important piece of the music. And it's hard to do that. Like it's, it's very counterintuitive. Like your, your whole job is making noise. (laughs) So actively not making noise is sort of, it's just a different skill to develop. And Wes was really helpful with putting that in there. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I was listening to the album this weekend in the car and just sort of thought, you know, like I'd, not that I necessarily the chops to do it, but as a guitar player, it'd be a great album to play along with because there is room for, there's room, there's space, there's kind yeah. of, there's room to, you know, almost play along with an album, which is quite a rare thing. Um, and it is, it's that sort of Miles Davis versus John Coltrane thing, isn't it? You've got one guy playing three notes over the space of about six bars and they all sound amazing. And the other guy's playing this whole bluster of scales, which also sounds amazing. But that the whole Miles Davis thing of just giving you room to make some decisions about what the notes mean can be really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, my dad would always, um, as a banjo player, my dad would always practice to Manzanita because there's no banjo on Manzanita. So he would just yeah. practice by playing along with Manzanita. I mean, that's that's pretty good workout, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to 
to have I mean, I think what you're doing with the podcast is great because there's not a lot of opportunities for people to to get to play along in that sense. Like, you know, you can play along with a recording, but it's but that's not the same as like trying to fill the space in a recording exactly. Yeah, and I I, um, I sort of started going back to this whole authenticity thing. Really, I, when I started doing the podcast, I was a bit nervous that there were many better people than me in terms of musicians who could do something like this. But I sort of quite quickly came to the idea that if it's got some mistakes in and it sounds a bit kind of rough around the edges, that's all right. Cause that's what jamming with somebody else in their front room is going to sound like anyway. Totally. And that was sort of part of the thing. And so I sort of talked myself around and learned to relax into it a bit. And then, yeah. And it's been really fun to do. It's been just, I sort of started out as a, a bit of a lockdown thing thinking well people can't get to jams maybe but actually it turns out to be something people are using to get the confidence up to be able to go to a jam because they just you know don't don't quite know when they're ready and you never right. you never feel you never feel ready you've just got to go and get on with it but totally but it's been really nice to hear that um one one thing i found really interesting is and it's sort of a, a kind of recent shift in the way we discover music and stuff. When I was younger, you used to buy albums or you'd watch videos on TV or whatever, where you go and see a band live and there'd be a support act and you go, oh, they're cool. But the opportunity to discover things now, like you can, particularly with the amount of content that's out there, you could discover you and learn quite a lot about you as a musician without buying any of your records at all, just through the mm -hmm. amount of content there is out there through things like the Carter, Carter's vintage guitar videos and stuff like that, mm -hmm. which I love. They're great. You know, and there's a lot of duet stuff on there as well. Mm -hmm. There's so many different ways of experiencing this music now. And I think maybe lockdowns contributed to that a bit because people are live streaming and Facebook living and whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I really like those Carter's videos and they look like they're probably quite a lot of fun to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're um, a nice little, thing I, the folks that record them are really fun to hang out with <laughs> um and it's fun to get to play the fancy instruments and stuff um and the ones that i've done um like i did a few with molly tuttle yeah. and those were really fun it was fun you know we used um we played a bunch of music together and stuff and so it was fun to get to record some of that but um I do think it's interesting that there's so much, so many more ways to experience music, but I don't know that it's necessarily super different from, you know, once records became a thing and then once radio became a thing, like things just sort of, there's always new things. Like you used to, it was a big part of like tunes changing over time was that there weren't recordings of the tunes. Like if somebody was going to go and learn a tune, you had to either learn it from the person or I've heard stories about people like fiddlers or like groups of people like pulling together enough money to send one fiddler to go see a show of somebody like traveling through and try to remember all of the tunes that they played to bring back and teach to people. And like, that's obviously going to lead to there being different versions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, once, once records came along that changed everything because that, then whatever version was recorded was the version, which was never true before. You could play it, you know, a fiddler could play it differently every single time they played it. But now that it's recorded, it's like, this is that version of that tune and it lives forever, essentially. And now with videos and stuff, that's extra true. And with videos of, you know, everybody has a camera in their pocket, yeah, like, yeah whatever I play at a show, if somebody happens to video it, like that version exists forever. Whereas like in the past, that would have just been something that happened and you had to have been there to, to see it. Yeah. And, and like a recording is a snapshot of a, a piece of music at one particular time. And that's all it is, isn't it? It's, and you, you mm -hmm. might go back to the studio and play the same song the next day and it's all the breaks are totally different. And that would have been the version. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what's made me feel very comfortable with putting out music and making videos is like, I can only, you know, I, I lean towards being a perfectionist, but I don't get anything done <laughs> if I am doing that. So I, I, um, I, I feel very comfortable now acknowledging that 
generally I am the average of the best and worst that I am. Like wh- however I play today, if I, if I play worse today than I play tomorrow, it doesn't really matter. It all averages out to the same thing. And, you know, a recording is just, this is how I sound right now. Like I can't wait forever to sound, you know, it's just, it's just going to sound however it sounds right now. So I, I, that's made me a lot more comfortable making recordings and stuff. It's just like, you know, I I could wait 10 years and be better and record something or I could just do it now. (laughs) Like it doesn't really make any difference. It's exactly the same thing about working out when you're ready to have a kid, like you're never ready, Mm -hmm. but when they arrive, you become ready. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's really, um, it's refreshing to hear you say that. And it's become a little bit of a theme in these interviews of just this idea that however accomplished somebody is or famous somebody is or successful somebody is or like everybody's just on this journey we're not like I think it's easy I've said this to to other people in interviews I've done it it's easy for people like me to look at really accomplished players and presume that they've arrived and Mm -hmm. that's you know you're just wandering around enjoying the view and and everybody I've spoken to has said no of course not like we're still we're just we're just at a different point of the journey and there's some stuff that we've internalized that we don't need to think about now that might be a struggle for you but we're yeah. internalizing new stuff every day and some days it doesn't feel great and some days it does. And Yeah. It's very, you know, sometimes it's, there's definitely like, especially in bluegrass, there's like this vaguely Southern thing of just like always being weirdly humble about everything. But there's also a very real, like everybody's always just trying to get better. And that's part of why I like living in Nashville. Like it is a very competitive town in a lot of ways but everybody's just always trying to get better at what they're doing. And it's, it's not about, it's not necessarily about being better than somebody else. It's just about being the best that you you can be. Mm. And it's, everybody's constantly just like working really hard. I I was talking to um, Bronwyn Keith Hines the other day. She just won uh, fiddle player of the year. And I've known her for a long time and, um, we're about the same age and I was asking her how it felt. Um, and she was, you know, ha- having, she was, you know, happy about it, but tr- you know, it's, it's hard to not have reservations about like, do I deserve this? Which, you know, had I won that award, it would have been exactly how I felt. And like when Molly won guitar player of the year, that's how she felt. And, but a couple of years, I guess, 2020 at IBMA, Daryl Anger, um, got he was presented a distinguished achievement award and his speech was really beautiful and a big part of it was him saying like i'm really thankful that people think that i'm deserving of this when there are so many people other people who are equally deserving or more deserving of this and it's daryl anger talk like like maybe the most influential fiddler of the last 50 years like you know, being very genuine and saying like, there are a lot of people who deserve this award and he's right. But also like, he obviously deserves that. Award. <laughs> like, so we're all just like, it's that sort of, um, I don't know. We're, we're all just, I think that's part of what makes somebody really good at music is just constantly trying to get better at it. It's, it's not like, then for me, there's definitely also been this sort of attempt to shift towards like having some level of confidence as well of being like, okay, Mm. I am actually pretty good at what I do. Like I, (laughs) it's, there is definitely a point where it shifts into, I can't be like self deprecating all the time or whatever. Like I know that I'm good at the mandolin, but I'm also always trying to get better and I have better and worse days and stuff. And I think that's a very, it's a very human thing to forget to look back and we just look at where we've still got to go and how long it's going to take us to get there. And we forget to look back at how far we've come because yeah. it's just like, it's human nature. I think particularly with musicians, it's, you know, it's, it's can be our undoing sometimes, but it's, it's really natural to do it. There, there's nothing yeah. worse than somebody who is great, but knows they are and has no <laughs> doubt, doubts about it whatsoever yeah. <laughs> because it probably means they've stopped learning stuff. Yeah. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so I, I started to actually notice, like I didn't notice it before when it was happening, but now I've noticed like there are songs or recordings that I listen to where I'm like, I could never play that. There's no way I'll ever be good enough to like play that. 
and that I would listen to when I was younger. And I listen to now and I think that. But there are ones that I listen to now and realize like, oh, I could play that. Like, you know, it, it would be possible for me to learn that. Like, whereas it wasn't even conceivable <laughs> for me to be able to play that at a certain point in time. So that's been a benchmark for me is like looking at things that I um, <laughs> that I had wanted to learn, um, and and now have the I, now I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, we're sort of getting towards wrapping things up. Time. Um, what what have you got coming up that that you want to share with us? We've talked a bit about the tune books and we've talked about um, kind of duet work, but um, I know you've got a new album coming out any day now. Yeah, yeah. It's and that's another, it's very much a snapshot thing of, it's a solo tenor banjo record, which um, I think is very funny to have made. <laughs> but it's, I've always loved the banjo more than the mandolin, probably. Like, I, I just, I really like the banjo, but I'm too lazy to actually learn how to play the banjo for real. So I really like playing the tenor banjo because it's tuned the same as a mandolin. Um, and somebody uh, sent me one towards the beginning of the lockdown. And so I was just sort of playing it all year and I had like worked up some arrangements and stuff for it. And I just sort of realized like, Oh, I could just record these. This would be nice. Like I like how these sound and mm. it's sort of a nice little snapshot of like what I was doing. And there, it's all solo. So it's also very much like my experience of just playing these tunes alone in my apartment yeah, um, for a bunch of months. And so it's, it's fun. It's definitely something like, <laughs> Like, I don't know what bin you would put it in genre wise. Like it's not, you know, it's a tenor, it's a solo tenor banjo album. It's not a bluegrass record, but I'm playing the instrument like a bluegrass mandolin player would play tenor banjo. Um, and it's, but it's just pretty, it's just stuff I like. It's just yeah. music that I'm into. So when, when you get the physical copies pressed, you'll kind of obviously write on the side file under solo tenor banjo brackets played like a mandolin player would play it. Yeah, that's the section it goes in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. So when when's that due out? When can we hear that? Uh, Friday, October fifteenth. So um, that's this week. That's this week. Yeah. So that's like my main thing right now. I'm I'm doing some shows with um, Alyssa in our duet, and I I think some of them are going to be live streamed at the end of the month. I'm not positive oh, cool. about that but we're always doing stuff and making videos and stuff so it's fun to follow along with and um yeah i don't know i'm going into the winter i'm excited to start working on some new ideas and stuff for next year you know i'm playing a bunch with missy rains next year we're coming cool. over to europe supposedly so assuming that'd that works cool. out that'd be cool great um and kind of one last question just because i've I've read so much of the, the stuff you've written about kind of researching tunes and authenticity and history and just being fascinated by what bluegrass is and where it comes from and what it means. Are there, is there a book or two books that you would recommend people to go out and buy if they want to dig into this stuff further? Is there, is there a great read out there that you'd recommend to us? Well, it's a good question. Um, and it's actually something I've thought about a lot recently. I just did this panel about the future of, bluegrass scholarship and like academia. And one of the things we talked about is um, having things to recommend to people because there's lots of great books. I have a lot of books here on my shelf, um, but I don't always recommend all of them because a lot of them need context. I mean, the classic is just Neil Rosenberg's bluegrass. Yeah, sure. um, but you know, it's a long book that you learn a lot about the history, but it, it won't necessarily, it's not super relevant. I am <laughs> in a loose plug, theoretically working on some like sort of updated, sort of more accessible history things that will be available at some point. Um, cool. <laughs> let me, wait, let me look at my shelf and see if I can see one, if there's one I'm forgetting. Well, act, the Bluegrass Reader is fun. It's a collection of essays um, compiled by um, Thomas Goldsmith, which um, I think that's maybe a little bit more fun. And 
I maybe I would recommend actually Toy Heart, which is um, a podcast that yeah yeah that Tom Power uh, did the interviews for for blue, the Bluegrass Situation. Tom's a really great interviewer and a secret bluegrass fanatic, and so his interviews are really great. And he covers a lot of a lot of ground in the um, first season. This is the second season I haven't listened to, but um, it's it's really cool. I so I'd recommend that probably. Yeah, great. I'll stick a link to that in the show notes then. Brilliant. Um, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's been really enjoyable chatting to you about this. And um, I've I've learned a lot. And I imagine that everybody who's going to listen to this will feel the same. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, well, likewise. I had a really great time talking. So there we have it. Uh, great interview. I'm sure you will agree. I really enjoyed doing that one. Um, I will pop links in the show notes to all the bits and pieces we chatted about so you can go off and find those interviews and the book and the podcast and yeah, and all that. And do go and listen to Tristan's new Tenor Banjo album as well as all the other bits and pieces. I particularly love the latest Scroggins and Rose release. Go and check that out. There's some great tracks on there. Um, yeah. And I'll be back, as always, with more tunes next week um, and another food for thought episode on Fridays but in the meantime have a great time and happy picking Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s visit collingsguitars.com and find out why